Welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. This morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series that we started last week, One Way Jesus, and we're going to be looking at not just what our thoughts are concerning Jesus, but we're going to be looking specifically over the next series of weeks, the statements that he made about himself. And we began last week with the premise for the series, the invitation that Jesus gave his disciples in a conversation to consider who he was. And he began the conversation with, hey, what are people speaking about me? And uh, as they kind of came with the popular opinions, he turned the conversation uh, and made it more pointed and personally said, but what about you? What do you say about me? And for each one of us, we have to answer that question. For each one of us, there is a personal invitation from Jesus for us to know him and to understand who he is and to make an affirmation, to make uh, a decision really for ourselves. But there are so many different lenses and so many different things that try to inform that for us to really land on solid footing. A great way for us to do that is to consider what Jesus said about himself and really be invited into affirming that truth in our own life and in our own person. There's a popular story that circulates every so often uh, concerning Charlie Chaplin. I'm not sure if you're aware of who he was, but he was an actor uh, early on in cinema. All of his stuff was pretty much in black and white. And there is a, a popular story that circulates again every so often that talks about him entering a Charlie Chaplin lookalike contest. Uh, and one iteration of the story has him in a, entering a Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest in San Francisco and coming in third place in a contest of his own likeness. Uh, there's another iteration out there that suggests that he entered one at a county fair or at a state fair, and he came in 27th place in that one, particularly because his, uh, his eye color was blue, and they, look, they watched all of his movies in black and white, and of course his eyes are brown, and so like a blue-eyed Charlie Chaplin into the line, pal, type of a thing there. And you can kind of go through and dig through. There's kind of some urban legend and folklore around this, but it is highly plausible that through the, uh, the accounts and just kind of the newspaper reports that that was something that happened on at least one occasion. What was fun for me as I was kind of digging into that, because you catch little stories, you want to make sure that there's kind of like some, some actual scholarship behind those. But as I was digging into the Charlie Chaplin look-alike contest failure, I actually found that Dolly Parton lost a look-alike contest of her own likeness on one occasion, and that Adele entered a contest for impersonating Adele, and it was an embarrassingly long time before those in the uh, constituency there were like, like, wait a minute, th- I think this is the real, the real one. And so there are tons of stories, actually, of people actually being themselves and saying, here I am, and people being like, nice try, imposter. And I share that with you because uh, what it illustrates is kind of a cognitive dissonance that a lot of times that we have when we see what we're expecting to see or we find what we're expecting to find. And in all of those contests and contexts, whether it's Charlie Chaplin or Dolly Parton or Adele, the expectation is that those who are going to be there participating are not the original, and so I'm expecting to find exactly what I expect to find. 
And when it's kind of thrown into this disillusionment, there's a hard time kind of recognizing that or coming to grips with that. And I share that with you because this expectation a lot of times impacts our perspective of Jesus. That either the expectations that we have or the kind of the framework or the lens that we're using, that when we look at Jesus, we want to be able to ascribe kind of our own type uh, of um, expertise to it and to be able to declare with certainty this is who he is and this is what he does and there's no end to people uh, making those types of statements and declaring kind of what they think and sometimes we're those people and we'll say things like Jesus would never or Jesus always and then we'll make kind of a polarizing claim a blanket statement as if that was always true and for any number of reasons when we do that or when we're using our own lenses we kind of gravitate uh, really towards like a, a, a hubris to consider our own perspective as the expert. And we're all going to need to answer personally the who do you say that I am. Jesus pushes for that. He invites that. But to be on really firm footing in affirming who Jesus is and what he does, a great place to begin is with who he says he is. Not just what I think or what I thought or how I experienced or what my, uh, my, my predetermined lens or my more comfortable perspective is, but to allow Jesus to say this is who he is rather than us looking at Jesus and saying you're the imposter, to actually allow him to say here I am and this is who I am. And so as we go through this series, we're actually going to be looking at seven statements from the book of John. In John's gospel, he records seven different occasions where Jesus makes a statement that begins with, I am, and then he makes a definitive, declarative statement about his person and about his work. And in all of those places, as he makes those statements, it's not an invitation for you and I to debate. It's not an invitation for you and I to kind of push back and say, well, Jesus, I think that you're really more like this, or you really are more like that. It's a declaration that causes us to have to pause and evaluate whether or not we are going to affirm his person in our lives, or whether we're going to bring that to some type of of dispute. And so this morning we're going to look at the first of the I am statements. It's going to be found in John chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, I want to go ahead and encourage you to go ahead and get those out, raise those up. If you've got your smartphone or your tablet, go ahead and open up your Bible app. And Lord, we do pause for just a moment and ask for you to soften our hearts towards your word. Lord, that you would open our eyes, that as Jesus would describe it, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you would speak to us through your word today. And Lord, the places that it would challenge our perspective, the places that it would step on our toes, the places that it would look to correct or direct realignment in our lives, give us soft hearts to receive that and give us courageous faith to act on it. Give us a sensitivity to your Holy Spirit to be led into putting it into practice this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So with your Bibles out, you can go ahead and open up to John chapter 6. We're going to spend all of our time there this morning, again, looking at the first of the I am statements that John records through his gospel. And we're going to kind of put this into three categories. If you're a note taker, this will kind of button it up really nice for you. But the first one is we're going to begin with Jesus's declaration. We're going to begin with the statement that he makes, exactly what he said, and what that is meant to kind of imply and present to us as a wrestling. And then we're going to move from that to consider motivation. We're going to move from his declaration to our motivation. 
what and how and why do we actually draw ourselves to Jesus? And then once that has taken place, or once we find ourselves in that face-to-face encounter, we're going to consider his invitation. So it'll be a declaration, a motivation, and an invitation as we walk through this. And we're going to begin just with the declarative statement right now. In John chapter 6, verse 35, in the middle of this chapter, in the middle of this narrative, Jesus declares this. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So right in the middle of this narrative, right in the middle of this context, Jesus makes a very definitive statement about himself. He uses a metaphor of bread, and he declares himself to be the bread of life. He's not making it as a statement of being up for debate. This isn't going to be a conversation that's being held that everybody's going to kind of come help shape the definition of. He's being very precise and very intentional with what he's saying. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And the context of this statement is going to be something that's important for us to to understand because Jesus uses this statement and he uses bread as a metaphor here. And that that can cause us to begin to think of all kinds of things. Uh, We can go in many different directions. And so knowing the whole of the chapter is going to be really important. I'm going to give you a couple kind of uh, flyover ideas and kind of thoughts and walk you through this. But I would encourage you if you want to be a little bit more informed and have some depth to what the Lord would stir in you today to just read John chapter 6 on your own throughout this week. But John chapter 6 opens up uh, with Jesus moving to a shoreline and beginning to teach. And he's gathered what is uh, described in Scripture as a multitude. And when Jesus would kind of end up in groups, there were words that indicated concentric circles of kind of a growing followership. You had kind of the three, Peter, James, and John. They were often seen closest to Jesus. You have the 12, I like to call them the tight 12, right? The 12 disciples or the 12 apostles later on they're described as. And they're kind of that group that was like his main troop. And then there is a, a broader term called disciples that was a, a growing fellowship. There was at least 120 of those in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. You have the crowds that were kind of uh, another concentric circle of growing mass. And then you have what is referred to as the multitudes, which was like the anybody's and the everybody's, all of the looky-loos coming to kind of see what was going on. And in this context, there's a multitude that is gathered. So you've got the three, the tight 12, you've got the disciples, you've got the crowds and the multitudes. They're all gathered together. And as John chapter 6 begins to proceed, Jesus brings up the problem of feeding the group. The day is waning and he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, give them something to eat. And now they've got this problem. They don't have enough money to buy all of that food. There's no place to buy all of that food if they had that money. And the mass of people would suggest that there is not an answer for this, whether they, wa- whether they had the money and the place to buy food, that it still wouldn't be something that they would be able to meet as a need. And John tells us that Jesus already knew what he was doing that he was uh, using this to kind of shape and to grow and to test and transform the disciples. And then you go into this narrative where Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's the number of men that are present. There's going to be the women and uh, the children that would uh, make that number a little bit more exponential. And you have kind of this miraculous feeding of the 5,000. So this is what is preceding this statement that Jesus makes where he is the bread of life. 
this multitude has gathered, they've all been there, and they have been a part of receiving the blessing of this miracle. And scripture would let us know that they recognized it for what it was, and they were all kind of like, wow, that was amazing type of a deal. And as you continue to read the narrative, the disciples get in a boat and they head back over to the other side of the sea. Jesus retreats and he goes off to pray. And the multitude is left wondering, what is he going to do next? Where's he going to go and what's he going to do? And so the next day begins and they realize that Jesus is gone. He's nowhere to be found. The disciples already left earlier and they're left scratching their head wondering like what is happening and where is he? And they get word that Jesus has arrived on the other side. They don't know how he got there and they don't know when he got there, but they know that he's not where they are. And so they decide that they're going to go find him. And it says that they pile into a bunch of boats and they make their way over to Jesus. Something is compelling them. Something is motivating them to go where Jesus is, to find where he is, and to gather around his person. And when they find him, somebody in the group, or a spokesman for the group, or many people in the group, begin to lead with this question of, hey, Jesus, when did you get here? And what they want to know is, like, how did you ditch us, <laughs> right? How'd you, how'd you give us the okey-doke, and you slipped away without us knowing what's going on? They're kind of trying to press for that type of a, why aren't you still with us, and where are you going, and what are you going to do next? And Jesus begins to press them about their motivation, in John chapter 6, verses 26 to 27, so they've been fed and they have chased after him and they have come to him in discovery. Jesus answers them, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They gathered to Jesus. They came in mass. They were pressing in all around him. And then Jesus exposes their motivation for what it is. Jesus exposes his, their motivation for what it is. There, there are a number of different things that draw you and I to Jesus. There are any number of reasons that we would be motivated, that we would be compulsed or compelled, or that we would be drawn to Jesus. Sometimes it's a deep need. Sometimes it's a desperation. Sometimes it's a desire for wholeness or healing. Sometimes it is in, in pursuing a rich and right relationship with the Lord. There's a number of different types of motivations, but whenever you come to face-to-face -to -face with Jesus, he's going to uh, expose that to you. Not because somehow he doesn't know, but because we need to know what our motivations look like. And Jesus is calling them out on what is motivating them right now. They're not motivated by a desire to know him or to in, engage in the things of the kingdom of God. They're not uh, uh, drawn to him, even because of the signs and wonders, which is really interesting to me. Jesus says, you're not actually even drawn to me because of the signs. You're literally drawn to me because of the free lunch. It, it, was, just, it was the free lunch. And they were looking for him to do that again. And we often, we, we, we often turn to Jesus we often turn to Jesus when, when we have like a physical or a practical or immediate or a desperate need. And that's not necessarily inappropriate to do that, but we do need to recognize when that is the motivation that draws us to him. Because he's going to have a conversation with them about that. 
Because what he presses them for, what he presses them for is to have a motivation that goes beyond just kind of the practical and the immediate needs of their lives being met, to have more of a spiritual and more of an eternal perspective and a desire. And so he says, don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. He's trying to change the narrative, change the conversation from Jesus, yesterday you gave us a free lunch to what Jesus actually came to bring and to do and to give and to offer them. And when you begin to read the rest of the context, they kind of move and hinge on this kind of this idea of, of not looking for loaves of, of bread because Jesus says to consider eternal life. They start to have a conversation about manna. And I don't know if you are familiar with that or, or are familiar with the Old Testament uh, conversation around that, but when the people of God were wandering in the desert, God miraculously provided for their daily need by providing manna. It was literally, it was uh, a word that meant, what is this? And it was understood to be this bread that came from heaven. They would awake in the morning and it would be flaked all over the ground and they could gather what they needed for the day and it was enough for the day. They couldn't gather any for tomorrow because it would spoil by the end of the day and so every day they were learning to depend on the Lord. And there was a messianic expectation in the culture that whoever the Messiah was was gonna replicate that. I'm not actually sure where they got that idea and how it informed itself into their expectation, but very clearly when you, when you study uh, the, the culture and the context and the expectation of the time, there was kind of this threaded idea that when the Messiah came that it was gonna be free bread every day. This is gonna be awesome. And so some of this conversation is kind of pushing towards that because what they push Jesus for is they push him for another sign. They say, what sign will you give us? How, how are you gonna kind of show us that you're really who you say you are? Like, what, how are you gonna razzle-dazzle us one more time? But Jesus had already called out that their motivation wasn't even to see the sign. All they wanted was this kind of, this, this free lunch. They were hoping that what they desired was just gonna be restored and replicated. They wanted life to be made easy and in many ways, Jesus was saying, you're missing the greater offering. They were so focused on the immediate and the temporal that they couldn't consider the spiritual significance of who he was and what he was offering them. One commentator would describe this mass of people as being crass materialists, which I find a, a very interesting type of a phraseology that could be transposed over a lot of Western culture today, particularly in American materialism. At times, I think that that would be fair. And so there's this sense of like this temporal and this aberrance and this crave and just, I just want what I want and I want life to be easy and I want it now that is kind of being pressed in here and Jesus is pushing back to them and he's exposing that motivation and he's drawing them to consider something different. You're, you're missing the greater offering. You're missing the greater offering. And what's really interesting to me, and just for kind of a, a side note, um, the, the, the metaphor of the use of bread in scripture, uh, when Jesus says that he's the bread of life, the idea of bread being something spiritual or something to denote the work of God within his people, it wasn't, wasn't a brand new concept there. When Jesus was uh, tempted in the wilderness by the devil, one of the ways that he rebuffed the devil's temptation is he reminded the devil that man does not live by bread alone, but by what? every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's actually uh, quoting Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, 
where the writers there is re- describing uh, the design of manna to the people of God. These things are all kind of woven together. He, uh, De- Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 says that he humbled you, speaking to the people of Israel, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And as uh, kind of an understanding of, of God's word going forth, many times we would assume that or we would ascribe that to the idea of scripture and that's appropriate and applicable. And when Jesus is speaking to the devil in that context, he's also using it in that way that we're going to rely on the word of God, actually quoting the word of God in doing so. Uh, and, and kind of juxtapositioning this idea of bread and nourishment against the word of God. Maybe you've had a pastor or maybe in your own devotional thought life you've thought, man, just like I need to eat every day, I should eat from God's word every day. And that's good and that's appropriate. But can I tell you, you can read scripture and miss Jesus altogether. Like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, they knew the Old Testament scriptures front to back, back to front and couldn't see the son of God when he stood right in front of them. The bread of life is not just somehow like the word of God. The word of God is written to show us who the bread of life is. It's Jesus. In fact, John chapter one tells us that the word, the actual fullest expression of the word of God is Jesus. John chapter one says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Please hear, I'm not diminishing the word of God, its authority or its value at all, but everything in it points to Jesus. Don't miss Jesus because your nose is just in the book. Don't miss Jesus. He is the bread of life. And when he makes that statement, what he is declaring is that you will not ever truly be satisfied in anything else or by anyone else. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is temporal. There's a whole book in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, that kind of writes to that end where the writer of that book had influence, he had affluence, he had power, he had uh, thrown himself into experiencing all that the world had to offer. And at the end of all of that time and all of that toil and all of that pleasure and all of that pursuit, he begins that book with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And then he spirals into chapters and chapters of depression because the things that he thought were gonna fulfill him, he ultimately found were temporal and empty. The things that he thought were going to add value and were gonna last, that there was a time frame where those things were going to expire. That anything and everything else was ultimately gonna be found wanting. And as he ends the book, he, he makes this assertion, know the Lord. He actually says, seek and find God while he may be found. That the whole purpose and focus and fulfillment that comes in living the life that we have is being in right relationship with God. He rightly concludes that. And when Jesus makes the declaration, I am the bread of life, he is calling us to consider that there is no other place that we can find satisfaction that is not temporal. He is the only one that brings eternal fulfillment 
and his satisfaction. He's the only one who brings wholeness and healing with nothing missing and nothing broken. He's the only one who provides that. And so he's trying to move this conversation where, the, where uh, the, the, the multitude is like, where's my free lunch? To being like, you're missing the free gift of salvation. He's trying to elevate the conversation. And they're not able to go with him. They're not, they're not going with him. And there is a very real, um, there is a very real hurdle in people's lives when their basic physical needs aren't met. And I do, I do want to take a moment and highlight this. This is why it is so important for followers of Jesus to be ready to meet and aid practical needs when we see it. It's the reason why in James, when he says that if you see somebody who's cold and you don't do something about their warmth, but you say, I'll be praying you find a jacket, James would say, hey, that's not really going to impact their life. That when you see somebody who's hungry and you don't take a step to actually meet the need and help them uh, be filled, but you say, go and be filled, I'll pray for you, that that's not going to have really lasting spiritual impact in their lives. There's, there is a very real challenge for people to respond to spiritual truths when their basic physical necessities are not being met. In fact, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole vein of academia that's called motivational theory, and you've got individuals like Maslow and Adams and Fielder and a whole host of others that would say that you can't move and grow and transform to these other uh, ideas or concepts. You can't hold space for those when you don't know when your next meal is going to be, when you don't feel safe, and when your basic needs are not met. That you're not interested in having a discussion of spirituality, and you're not uh, interested in framing out a theology of tomorrow when you don't know if you're going to make it through today. And I do want to point out that Jesus did both. Jesus met practical needs. He fed and sat and ate and he wept and ached and he lived alongside people and then he also invited them to experience the supernatural and the transcendent and the internal. And he did both of those. In fact, scripture records that at least on one other occasion, Jesus did the multiplied feeding. It was a group of 4,000 in that other context with women and kids. It's actually likely that on more than just the two occasions that Jesus did this. John, as he finishes out his book, says that if we tried to write down all the things that Jesus did and said and the miraculous signs and wonders, that there wouldn't be enough pages and enough books in all of the earth to fill that. That's how he closes his book, to just say, hey, just so that you know everything that I recorded here, it's just a little piece of everything that Jesus did. And everything that Jesus did in that three-year span, listen to me, is just a little piece of all he can continue to do. And so the invitation uh, is, is to him. He makes this declaration now, I am the bread of life. He challenges their motivation. He exposes it. And then as they kind of push on this manna piece and as they're kind of trying to press him again, just trying to get the free lunch idea, um, he, he begins to move to an invitation. John chapter 6, verse 47. He says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. So he's moving from just this idea of bread metaphor. He's moving from just this idea of, of uh, kind of eating and being filled or thirsting and, and having your thirst be something that has been addressed. 
He begins to shift the conversation from eat and drink and just from natural needs being met to now considering eternal life. The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness and yet they died. He's like, you guys, you can keep eating free lunch every day and still at the end of it, die. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. He's trying to elevate the conversation from the basic needs being met to eternal needs that are in desperate need of being met. He's trying to help them see the invitation and to respond to that type of need. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. And right here, everything kind of switches and gets uncomfortable for them. Right? They were okay with the manna conversation. They're okay with this idea of bread, even with trying to draw the line of significance between him being the Messiah and him being kind of the bread of life. Like they're trying to maybe wrestle through that. But we know that the larger group, the multitude, is just really there looking for him to give them a free lunch like they did yesterday. And so he moves, he's exposed their motivation. You're just here for the free lunch and now he's pressing them on some spiritual truths and now he switches the idea of I'm the bread of life to now you're gonna eat my flesh, right? That, gets a li- that escalates quickly, doesn't it? That gets a little weird. He said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink and this is getting really uncomfortable for the masses. Right? Because this like shifts from like we're going to go down to the bakery and get a sweet loaf to cannibalism. It feels like a zero to a hundred like real fast like what is going on here? And if you read it through that lens, it's uncomfortable for us as well. Like Jesus, what are you talking about? I think everybody was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't see this coming. It is interesting and it is important to understand that when you are talking about eating and drinking in that context, it means to take fully into yourself and have it fully like metabolized. It becomes a part of you. The idea, the language around eating and drinking and the, the language that he is using here is, is not cannibalistic language. It's language that indicates receiving something fully and wholly into your person until it becomes a part of you. And there's actually a picture here, there's an allusion at least in part to when he institutes communion, when he sits with his disciples and he says, this is now my body broken for you. And he uses what? He uses bread. And then this is my blood poured out for you. So there's a picture, an allusion to the sacrifice that was to come, the free gift of salvation that was going to come at his expense, in his death, and in his resurrection. He's turning the language on that, and he's drawing them to this place that life is going to come to you. Life is available to you when you believe and receive, and you take me in wholly and fully and completely. That's where he's going with them, but they can't see it. They, they don't connect the dots. 
He continues on, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your, man, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. This is a, a theme that John draws our attention to over and over. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that what he gave his one and only son, that he didn't come into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Like this idea of new life, sacrificial life, substitutionary death. Like John is going uh, through his gospel, weaving this. Jesus' words are trying to draw their attention to this true offering and for that to be the motivation for them to come to him, but they can't connect the dots. And, and the result of the invitation is where it ends up becoming individualized again, right? Jesus makes this declaration, I am the bread of life. And you can weigh in as kind of a, a judge in the Charlie Chaplin contest and say, well, you know, I don't think that's right. But he's not declaring it as something for you to weigh and to affirm in a sense of judging it to be correct. The judgment that you make is whether you will affirm your life and align it with that truth. And so Jesus makes this declaration, I am the bread of life. And then as we come to him, he begins to expose our motivations and he wants to talk to us about that. Sometimes it's our deep need, it's our pressing need that draws us to Jesus. And, and that is not necessarily wrong or inappropriate, but we do need to know that that's what's drawing us. Because there's other motivations that drive us, especially when there's needs in our lives, especially when there's practical and pressing daily needs in our lives. And a lot of times it's fear. Sometimes it's doubt, self-preservation. And those are things that he'll always address with you before he addresses the need, because those are things that have to change. Those are things that need, uh, we need to be set free from. But he makes this declaration that he's the bread of life he is going to examine our motivations as we come to him, but then the invitation is always the same. The invitation is to experience life as we believe and receive. The language in this context here and the language that John uses throughout his gospel is to believe and receive. In fact, John says that all of the signs that he records in this would be so that you would believe. And it's at that invitation that we all find ourselves that when we circle back to Jesus' statement to the disciples, who do you say I am? Is there going to be an affirmation of believing who he is and what he has said about himself and receiving what comes as a result of that? Or is there another response that we might take? I'm going to invite you to stand. There's a couple things that we'll consider as we close this morning. Worship team, if you would come forward, we'll finish out in the song before we go. All of these people found themselves drawn to Jesus. A number of different motivations brought them there, and he addresses those things, but the invitation is always the same. The invitation is always to believe and to receive to believe and to receive and to begin to live that practically out. And so the question for you would be, how, how would you answer today? 
And what's interesting is if you read John chapter six, the crowds didn't respond well to this teaching. They would not take their eyes off their immediate needs or desires. They could not begin to think or conceptualize the spiritual invitation that Jesus was bringing. They would have been described as people who would have had hard hearts. They would have had um, eyes that were not open to see or ears that were not open to hear. In verse 60, as Jesus gets done talking about kind of this flesh and blood type of metaphor that he moves to, and it gets really uncomfortable there for a moment. Verse 60 says that on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? In verse 66 lets us know that from that time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. See, as they had to answer for themselves individually, who do you say that I am? They all wrongly concluded that he was not the bread of life. That he was not the Messiah. That he was not the one that they had been looking for. And part of that comes because they were looking for the wrong thing all along. They were looking for the wrong thing all along. And as the crowds are dispersing and as people are leaving, as they are disassociating themselves in following Jesus, he turns to his disciples and he asks them a question, much like we recorded from Matthew last week. He looks at Peter in the tight 12 and he says, and what about you? Are you going to leave me as well? There was a, there was a moment of decision there. Because I don't think they knew what Jesus was talking about. I don't think they were like, we get kind of the flesh and blood thing and like the rest of these guys are, t-. like they didn't have any idea. I'm not sure if they would have even remembered that Jesus taught this when he was instituting communion. I'm not sure if they would have been bright enough to connect those dots after the span of time. But Peter's response does indicate something that they knew very well. Peter says this, he says, where would we go? You are the only one with the words of life. I don't believe for a moment that Peter knew what Jesus was talking about, but he knew that he could trust Jesus for what he said. I don't think in that moment that he had reconciled this little teaching, but he had already reconciled in him who Jesus was and what that meant for his life. And the question for you and I is how would we answer today? Would we come to him as the bread of life? Would we come to him as the one and only who satisfies, the one and only who brings fulfillment, the one and only who uh, leaves what is lasting? Jesus, we come to you today because you have the very words of life. You would describe yourself as, as life itself. 
Lord, that you are the bread of life is how you stated it. And the challenge is what we're going to do with that. If we're going to take that in, if we're going to appropriate that into our persons or whether we are going to leave it. Lord, our heart's desire would be that we would believe and receive all that you would have for us today. Our heart's desire would be that we would come to you as the one with the very words of life. Our heart's desire would be that we would stick with you, Jesus, because we know that true and lasting life awaits in that decision. And so, Lord, we choose to affirm your declaration that you are the bread of life. There is no other place that we can go to be fulfilled or satisfied. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the times where we've looked to replace you with something temporal. Holy Spirit, we invite you to expose the motivation in our life, the times where we're motivated by the wrong things, that we would be willing to surrender those to you and allow you to bring true and lasting life and change to us as a result. We ask that you would give us a desire to be your hands and feet to meet practical needs around us, Lord, knowing that in meeting those needs, there's an opportunity to draw people towards their spiritual and eternal need, the only one who can meet those. Let us do those the way that you did, Jesus, and may, us, may we be quick to respond to your invitation, which is always your invitation when we come to you face to face, to believe and receive, to believe and receive all of who you are and all of what you have for us. You are the one way, Jesus, the bread of life. And we affirm that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I got a few action steps for you to consider as you go out this week. The first one is just to begin to consider your motivations when coming to Jesus. Allow him to have kind of a conversation with you about those things. Where you're focused on the wrong things, make sure that you are aware of those and that you surrender those to the Lord. And then just make it a habit this week to receive him as the bread of life and allow him to bring satisfaction.